0: conductive wire. and you so electric no say when you came so near and just pass right through me hey everyone welcome to geekdom is back as is becky because we are talking all about harry potter and the prisoner of Azkaban today becky how are you doing i'm good how are you good i'm just still very tired
1: <laughs> yeah
0: I didn't get a ton
1: of sleep last night. So it's, I mean, it's 1230 here, but I'm still kind of feeling like I could use a nap or something.
0: That sounds about right. But I know we have been, well, I have been slowly rereading these Harry Potter books. So, you know, you're, you're ahead of me. I think you've probably finished by now or close to it. I think I finished them back in like September. Or so whenever we
1: recorded the first episode on Sorcerer's Stone, okay. it was around that time that I was wrapping up
0: with Deathly Hallows. So you're just waiting on me to get my butt in gear and get these all read. <laughs> yeah, apologize. but you have so many books that you're reading. <laughs> this is true. One of the first things I want to dive into with The Prisoner of Azkaban, though, is the pacing of the story. I know that's something we've been talking about with the first two books as well, because sometimes you just get these books and they feel like they're such a breeze to read. And the pacing is just so enjoyable. And I really felt that way about this one still, too, because, you know, I had read a little bit of it and then I had to put it down for whatever reason, probably because like you said, I'm reading like 800 books at once. And then I picked it up again. And it was just something I just wanted to keep reading and just not put it down. But you know, sometimes life happens and you can't just sit there and read a book all day. So I think, you know, J.K. Rowling has really nailed the pacing for these books. And hopefully I'll feel the same with the longer books. But these first three aren't too terribly long. You know, Prisoner of Azkaban is a little longer. I believe my hardcover copy was about 400 and some odd pages.
1: Yeah, this is about where she starts to kind of add to the length a little bit. I know, I want to say that Goblet of Fire or Order of the Phoenix are the longest in the series. Um, So she's, she's getting there, but J.K. Rowling does a really great job of making these books feel like they go by really quickly. And I think that part of that is, it's so important because it's it's kids' books, technically. These are yeah. these books are meant for kids, and kids don't necessarily have the greatest attention span, especially when it comes to reading. So I think that pacing is something that is super important to a series like this just because you need to be able to keep your readers' attention. And that's definitely something that she has has done really well, so at least thus far in the series. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're definitely right about that. i I like the way everything kind of plays out in these books, because it it doesn't feel like I'm sitting there reading 400 pages. I'm just I'm so absorbed in the story that I I don't even notice.
0: Exactly. It's one of those things where you're like, Oh, I just read 100 pages. (laughs) And it doesn't feel like all that much time has gone by. So it's definitely interesting to see how that all plays out as the books get longer and longer. And like you said, because they are kids books, I feel like it's actually pretty amazing that she was able to hold everyone's attention as the books got longer, because you would think, you know, most kids, they wouldn't have the attention span for a six, 700 page book, or however long the other ones are. I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but 600 sounds about right for some of them. Yeah, I I think Goblet of Fire is somewhere in
1: the 700s. Okay. At least my copy, but I could be wrong about that. Like I said, I think Goblet of Fire or Order of the Phoenix are the longest in the series. And then it kind of dips back down again a little bit for Half Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows. But as a whole, like those last four are all longer by quite a bit than the first three.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, you and I are both perfectly fine with the pacing of this book in particular. So, I want to go ahead and move on to the two big new characters introduced in this one because you have Remus Lupin and Sirius Black. And I think both of them are just such great additions, not only because of the connection they have with James Potter or had with James Potter, but because it's one of those things where you have all of this mystery surrounding Black throughout the story, because, you know, everyone thinks he's this horrible person. And, you know, he killed all of these people when really that isn't the case. And then you have Lupin, who is someone who becomes a werewolf once a month, pretty much, or every full moon.
1: Yeah, I agree. I love the addition of these two characters, um, largely in part due to their their history with Harry's parents and the fact that they're able to share so much that he doesn't know, because obviously they, they were killed when he was a baby, um, but they're also, they end up being really great father figure, figures to Harry, which I think is so important because up until this point, the only one he's really had is Dumbledore. But um, as the books go on, Dumbledore kind of becomes a little bit more distant and he Harry's not as close with Dumbledore as he becomes with Sirius or with Lupin. So I think that they are super important to Harry's growth as well.
0: Absolutely. I love that you have these things that are added as the story goes along. You know, at first when we meet Lupin, he's just the defense against the dark arts professor or teacher, whatever you want to call them in Harry Potter world. And you find out little bits about him along the way. And I love the bit about the Marauder's Map because it just goes to show really how close he was with Harry's dad. And he wasn't really treating Harry any differently. He did at times, you know, when they were going up against, I forget the name of the beast, but it's the one that shows you like your worst fear kind of thing. And, you know, with Neville, you have it, (laughs) it's Snape, and then he puts Snape in his grandmother's clothes, which is hilarious. Boggarts? Boggarts. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. I don't know if we're pronouncing half of these names correctly because no clue. <laughs> that's the hard thing of when you read something, especially, you know, over such a long period of time, you say it one way in your head while you're reading it and then you have absolutely no clue if that's even remotely close to correct.
1: Yeah, Lupin is such a great teacher and he is definitely the best defense against the dark arts teacher that they have like throughout the entire series. Because in books one and two, we have Quirrell and Lockhart. And then four is fake Mad-Eye Moody. Five, we have Dolores Umbridge, who is arguably the worst character in the entire book series. And six, Snape takes over. And then in seven, we, we don't really see much of what's going on at Hogwarts. So Lupin is kind of setting the standard for Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was thinking throughout these three books, it's like, what does it take to keep a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher? Because they keep having this turnover in that position. And, you know, even though Lupin was on the right track, because of him turning into a werewolf and having it not be safe, you know, he willingly leaves by the end of the book. And that is such a bummer to see because then you're like okay here we go we're going to do this all over again with the next book and have a different teacher and you know it's something that snape is always envious of because he wants that job and you know obviously we we won't go into details for future books just yet but you can see that tension rising with snape and i think it really comes to a head in this book when he is sort of livid over the fact that all of this stuff is happening. And Dumbledore doesn't really seem to want to do much about it because he knows that in the end, Harry, Hermione and Ron are going to somehow figure it out like they did the last two books.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He puts a lot of faith in them as children.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's very strange, but at the same time, it's not all that surprising.
1: I mean, I guess they're not ordinary children. The fact that they are witches and wizards, like they already have these abilities that most children, like average children don't. Right. So it's a little different, but it's just like, it's one of those things where if you think about it, the first book, they're what, 11? And Dumbledore kind of leaves these these clues and these hints for Harry to follow to face Voldemort at the end. And it's like, that kid is 11 years old.
0: Yeah, it's very very odd. (laughs) Why are you putting them in danger like this? They aren't that much older. You know, each book is a year. Yeah. And it pretty much starts in the same place every time, you know, we're still at Privet Drive to sort of start this book. And obviously, that does not go very well for Harry. And that's no surprise at this point. But one thing I did notice with this book, too, was the fact that she wrote it in such a way where you could actually jump on with this book and have a good understanding of everything that's going on. Because I noticed when I was reading it, she would do these like little quick recaps of what had happened previously. And it wasn't so excessive that it was bothering me. It was just like, oh, you know, it, you know, that's a nice little reminder, especially with how long it takes to write a book. And yeah. you know, the, the weight between each book, obviously, you and I don't have to wait. Nearly as long now. You know, we could read them one right after the other. Well, for me, if I had the time to do that and didn't have anything (laughs) else to read, but it's one of those things where you're not waiting nearly as long. So the story kind of stays a little more fresh in your mind. At least that's how I felt rereading these, even though it's still taken months to get through three of them because, you know, of my reading schedule for my other podcast right now. But, you know, it's nice that even if you had missed the first two books, you could pick this one up and be like, oh, okay, you know, I, I get the gist of what's happening.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a great point that like you and I reading these now, we don't really have to wait in between books if we don't want to. But, you know, reading through this one again, for the first time in so long, I was a little bit not put off. But it was just like, it was weird to have that summation at the very beginning, because I had just read the first two. So I was like, Oh, like, I, why do I need this reminder? But then, you know, you put yourself in the mindset of, kids reading these as the books are coming out there was years in between them so in that sense it it was smart of her to put that little like recap in the beginning um because it's just like a a little reminder to all of the people who are reading them as they were coming out like hey like just in case you've forgotten here's what we had in the first two books of the series so i think that was like a smart way to open this one up also the beginning of this book is probably one of my favorites This book in general is like one of my favorites in the series. But the whole scene where Vernon's sister comes to stay with them, Marge, and she starts mouthing off about Harry's parents and, you know, bad parents, bad child kind of thing. And he just loses it. And she inflates like this giant balloon and floats away. I just that's like one of my favorite openings of any of the Harry Potter books.
0: I think that's one of my favorite moments from Privet Drive in general. So far, because even though, you know, you have the escape with the help of the Weasleys in the previous book, it, you know, that's a fun moment, too. But this is something that leads Harry to leave on his own. And it just puts him in a lot of danger at the same time, too. You know, he did see this big, Giant dog, <laughs> pretty much. And he thought he was hallucinating. And then he nearly gets hit by a bus. And it just leads to so many crazy events happening that I completely forgot. And it did not make my list that I put in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The whole, I mean, he blows up
1: his amp. He storms out of Private Drive with his stuff, not sure of where he's going or how he's going to get there. He sees. This giant dog, which as we find out later, isn't a grim, but it's it's his godfather. It's serious, just kind of checking on him. And in his fear, he stumbles over and up pops this what is it, a violently purple bus called the night bus. And the whole this whole sequence of events that leads him to Diagon Alley. And he ends up staying in Diagon Alley for the last couple weeks before he goes back to school. And it ends up being one of his best summers ever.
0: It's pretty sad that he has to leave his own family to have a decent summer, and that's something that yes, obviously has been there since day one, and it never really wavers, which I like. It's not like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, the Dursleys decided to warm up to Harry. It's like, no, they, they really, really don't like him. <laughs> yeah, they. it just... <sighs> It's, it is tough, and it is sad that like he just doesn't
1: get along with his family, but it's not because he's done anything wrong. It's just because they're horrible people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt about it, even after the first book. But by this one, you're just like, can we please get away from them sooner rather than later? Even as the reader, you're like, no, we don't want Harry here. Yeah. But we can go ahead and continue on with some of our favorite moments, because... I feel like this book brings up a lot of opportunities to have a bunch of different ones. And for me, a lot of them come when Harry is sort of learning things about his dad or connecting with his dad in a way that he didn't even realize it at first. And you have that when he sneaks out to Hogsmeade using the Marauders map for the first time. You know, he sees these names on the map because Fred and George gave it to him and he has no idea who these people are. Until later on, when he finds out that, you know, his dad, Lupin, and Black were all part of sort of this little mischievous group of kids at Hogwarts at one point.
1: Yeah, he just sees, what is it, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Yeah. On the map. It doesn't say anywhere who these people are, when they went to the school, how they managed to make the map. And he, he has no idea that this is kind of a connection to his parents. But he he discovers, I mean, the, as the reader, we discover that he's more like his father than we even knew. People always say, oh, he looks like James. Well, he also acts like James.
0: And he's doing it without even realizing it. So it's like, even though he didn't know his parents really at all, there's this connection that sort of runs really deep in him. And he's just now starting to learn even more about his father. And I think This book does a really good job of putting that into perspective, not only for Harry, but for the readers. It's like, okay, you know, he really didn't know anything at all about his parents. And even at that point, you know, when we first meet him in Sorcerer's Stone, everything he knew was a lie, pretty much.
1: Yeah, because he grew up thinking that his parents died in a car crash and that they were just normal people. And as it turns out, they were wizards and they were murdered. He ends up following in their footsteps without even realizing it. Um, and it's just like these parallels of who he, he is to who they were that kind of not only connect him to his parents more, like the more he learns about them, the more close he feels to them. But it also connects the readers to his parents because these are two characters that we never really see. Like we, we don't see them because they're they're not there. Yeah. But it's a way of making us feel like we know them.
0: Yeah. And something as small as having this secret map is just Something that means that ends up meaning so much to Harry in the end. It's sort of like having the invisibility cloak. You know, it's something he can use to sneak around. So clearly, his father had a lot to uh, sneak around for, apparently in his Hogwarts days. Yeah, and I mean, we learn when we when we find out that Lupin is
1: a werewolf. Which I mean, the last name Lupin is kind of a, a dead giveaway, but. Um, when we find out Lupin is a werewolf, we we learn about, more about his friendship with Harry's dad and how James and Sirius and Peter Pettigrew all became anim, anima, animagi? animagi. They all learned to transform into animals just so yeah. that they could spend those nights that Lupin is transforming with him and keep him kind of stable and out of trouble.
0: Absolutely. And it's something that they show you through the storytelling from Lupin. And just the fact that you can vividly picture what their friendship was like just from what Harry is learning from these stories is a testament to how well this book is written. And so far, you know, I've loved rereading every single one of them. And as you know, I'm not huge on rereading stuff just because of how many books I have. I don't yeah. even want to count how many unread books I have in my room right now, but it's one of those things where sometimes it's just nice to revisit something that you haven't read in so long because I literally have not read these books since whenever I originally read them in, what, elementary school? <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I'm i like the opposite. I think we've talked about this, but I love rereading books because I feel like you pick up on so many things that you don't necessarily Catch on to the first time around, or you're able to see, like, oh, this is why you did this because this is coming later. And I think, especially with the Harry Potter books, there's so much development through the series and so many things that she throws in there these tiny little details that you don't necessarily think of as being significant in each of the books that somehow play a bigger role later on.
0: Yeah. And you can see Harry being able to piece things together as. He continues his time at Hogwarts, and it's one of those things where he is under certain circumstances that no one else is under. You know, obviously, Ron has his issues and everything because his family is so big and they don't have as much money as some other families, and Hermione has her muggle parents, but they both still have parents. So for Harry, it's like, you know, everyone sort of has this thing that he doesn't. And then he just keeps having to go back to the Dursleys every summer, even though everyone knows, or at least everyone close to him knows he doesn't want to do that. Yeah. So it's just kind of crazy how these things start coming together and we're getting the full picture at the same time Harry is. It's not like we know more than Harry does. Sometimes books will do that. And it's like, you know, the readers know more than the character does. And that is exciting in its own right. But I feel like with this, it's kind of nice to just get things as they're being thrown at Harry as well. And that kind of leads me into one of my other favorite moments, which is Harry saving himself with his Patronus. And it's the same one as his dad's. And so for a moment there, you know, he thinks he saw his dad But really, he saw himself without realizing it until him and Hermione went back in time, which, you know, we find out that's how Hermione's been going to eight million classes all year, which is also pretty funny.
1: Yeah, the whole the whole idea of like time travel and stuff. This is like the first time that they're really introducing that. And I like that they don't go super deep into the reasons why it's dangerous or, you know, it never even crosses. Harry's mind to like maybe go back to the night his parents were killed and try to like save them or anything it's it's all very immediate for him and very much like we need to save Sirius now and we need to do what we can to make things better now it's like this big reveal because we we've seen them wondering how Hermione is getting to all of her classes all year long and we finally get this big reveal of like oh well she's got a time turner and she can go back in time and it's just this big moment when Harry realizes that wasn't my dad I saw, that was me. And I can do this and I can save him. It's just really nice as a reader to be along for that and to kind of see it unfold. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I feel like there are so many favorite moments I could pick out of this book too. And, you know, another really nice moment is when you have serious telling Harry that, you know, he can come live with him and everything, but then he has Mm -hmm. to run away. So, you know, we have no idea if that's actually going to come to fruition as these books are being released. You know, that's sort of a cliffhanger that we're left with in this book. And, you know, she also does a really nice job of leaving you wanting more so that you are looking forward to that next book, even though, you know, each book comprises an entire year of school at Hogwarts, there are still some storylines that are left hanging. And you know, there's more to them. And you just want to keep learning more and more about these characters.
1: Yeah, I mean, with Harry and Sirius, there's that short lived moment of Sirius is going to be free, Harry's gonna be able to leave Privet Drive, everything's going to get better. And then obviously, that moment is kind of taken away from us. But with Sirius out there and, and Harry now knowing the truth and you know Dumbledore and, and Lupin and Ron and Hermione all knowing what really happened, it leaves readers with this like little like, nugget of hope that one day Harry will be able to go and live with Sirius and things will get better and he'll be with somebody who was so close to his parents and will be able to teach him more about who they were and who can really take on this father role that he so desperately wants. And obviously, things don't necessarily play out that way. But it's just this nice little, like, like I said, a nugget of hope amidst like all these other terrible things that have been happening. Absolutely. And it makes it makes you as the reader want to keep going because you want to see this come come true.
0: Yeah, I also love that they are letting more of the teachers sort of get involved in Harry's life. And even though, you know, maybe other people don't know it outside of. Ron and Hermione, you know, you have Hagrid, who's this big part of Harry's life. And he actually has a pretty big role in this book as well, because he starts teaching. And that's something that's new for him. And it doesn't go so well. And you have the three kids trying to help him. And Hermione is just so exhausted this entire book, that it sort of gives you this feeling like, okay, you are what 13 now, I think I think you can take it easy on yourself. You don't have to uh, take 20 classes and have three of them be at the same time and keep going back in time <laughs> and all of this crazy stuff that she was doing because, well, honestly, I don't really know why. I know she really loves taking classes and all, but that's, even for Hermione, that seemed a bit excessive. And you could see it wearing her down more and more throughout the book.
1: Yeah. She definitely stretches herself a little thin, uh, in this one, but somehow still manages to find time to like help Harry and Ron with all the shit that they need to do. Exactly. (laughs) Because like, obviously they're not the best students and they tend to ask her for help with a lot of things, but obviously like her taking on all these classes is also, I guess, a device to give her the time turner. Like she she can't just have a time turner. She needs a reason for it. And right. if she didn't have the time turner, then things would have played out differently with with Sirius and with Buckbeak. Which Buckbeak is another great addition in this book. Like what, probably one of my favorite creatures yeah. is the, like the hippogriffs. Um, so it's cool to see them featured so prominently in this one. And you know Hagrid as a teacher is a little bit questionable and <laughs> yeah, uh, using a creature. Like a hippogriff is like one of the first things he teaches them about in class is kind of shows that like he has good intentions, but maybe the execution isn't quite there.
0: It was a little fun to see Malfoy get what was coming to him, though. It's true. Maybe that's a bad thing to say about a child. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's
1: a little greaseball. So,
0: yeah, he is the worst of the worst as far as the students go, it seems at Hogwarts.
1: Yeah one of my other favorite things about this book is The Whomping Willow and how even though it's not like, I don't know, can you call a tree a character? It kind of seems to have like a personality like it doesn't.
0: I feel like you can. Yeah, I think so. Because I've talked about how, you know, in some TV shows and things that Houses will seem like a character, you know. I don't know if you watched The Haunting of Hill House or anything like that, but it did. That the house had so much personality to it. It's like this feels like a character, and without this house, this story wouldn't work at all. So I feel like without this tree, a lot of various storylines in Harry Potter would not work.
1: Yeah, I just I, I like how it is only a tree. It's not like you can talk or anything, but it does have a personality and it does play this kind of pivotal role within the books and it wasn't it wasn't just you know them running into it with the car in book two here we see it coming back and having another kind of big part in book three and it does I believe come into play later on in the series as well so I just I like how recurring characters aren't limited to just like people and creatures
0: it really goes to show just how big this world is too because it's not Mm -hmm. just the human and you know It's not just the muggles in the wizarding community who play a role as far as characters go. You have, you know, even Hermione's cat and Ron's rat. (laughs) And, you know, they Mm -hmm. play a big part in this book specifically, too, because you have Sirius going around as a dog. You have Lupin going around as a werewolf. And even though they're animals, they are still themselves, even though they're sort of less of themselves at that point but it's one of those things where because this is a magical world literally for the story it gives you a lot more possibilities than you would have if it were just a bunch of regular kids at a regular school.
1: Yeah. There is one kind of plot hole that comes into play here because of all of this. Um so obviously Ron's rat Scabbers is actually Peter Pettigrew in rodent form. Um, but then we have the whole issue of how like Harry sees Peter Pettigrew on the Marauders map, but for some reason, like Fred and George never saw like anything weird about Ron sleeping in a bed next to a man named Peter Pettigrew.
0: Yeah, that's not weird at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like this little kind of discontinuity between like what the map can and cannot show. Yeah. Which is some, something that's always bothered me a little bit about this book is just like how, how is it that Harry was able to see Peter on the map, but like this is the first time he's ever showed up.
0: I don't know if it's because he was outed that he started showing up on the map or because, you know, Lupin figured it out maybe. It happens before that because Harry's like out wandering the castle. Okay. and. Yeah
1: when Lupin confiscates the map, Harry's like, just so you know, I don't think that always works. It showed somebody on there that I know is supposed to be dead.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Because then you have to wonder where he was when he first started using the map, or even when Fred and George were using the map. Yeah, you know, you would think they would know he was dead as well, if it was as big of a story as they're claiming it was.
1: Or like I said, just even the fact that like, Ron like sleeps with Scabbers in the bed next to him if they are using it at night at Hogwarts like they should be able to see that it says this weird name on there of somebody that they don't know like even just seeing him out and about in like the Gryffindor like common room or like the dorms if like Scabbers was wandering around on his own if they had an open he should have showed up and these houses are small enough that I feel like most of the students kind of know each other at least in passing or like by name. So the fact that there's this like whole other person on there that nobody really knows is just so weird.
0: Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's a very nice catch on your part. <laughs> it's just weird. And I don't think that's something that ever gets explained later either, if I'm remembering no, correctly. Again, it it's doesn't. been super long since I've read them, but I'm, I'm counting on your judgment for that one because you've read these books several times, I imagine now. Yes,
1: um. Yeah, it never gets explained, ever. He, he just like all of a sudden, Harry's like, hey, who's this guy that's on the map?
0: Was that something you caught the first time you read it or did you catch it after you started rereading them more? It was more as I started rereading them.
1: Like the first time I was just so like into the story and so like eager to find out what was happening and where it was going that I didn't really like pay much attention to that. And then as I was rereading it, I was like, wait, this is a little weird.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the perks to rereading stuff, too, because sometimes you blow through a book so quickly, you don't really get all the nuances that you could if you've reread it like you have several times over the years. And Even still, the fact that you are able to pick up on these things later on as you read them more and more, I think it just goes to show how much detail is put into these books while still making them extremely readable. It's not too dense with information to where it's a slog to get through it.
1: Yeah. And that all kind of goes back to like the pacing and stuff too, where it never feels like I'm sitting down and reading 400 pages worth of a book.
0: Yeah, and there are plenty of books that are like that, and they do end up paying off in the end. You know, it's sort of slow to get into them. And then by the time you get to the end, you're like, okay, you know, maybe it being a little slow at the beginning was fine. But with these, it's just like right from the start, like you said, you have Harry blowing his aunt up like a balloon or (laughs) whatever. And you have all of these moments that sort of get you back to Hogwarts. And even though they aren't necessarily crucial moments, they still add enough levity for it to feel like it's not as much of a slog as you would think being at the Dursleys every summer.
1: Yeah. And his time at the Dursleys, I feel like it gets shorter and shorter with each book. Yeah. So we see less and less
0: of them as time goes on. Yeah, because I believe we pointed out in the first book that it was like a third of the book or something. He was at Privet Drive and he was sort of just starting to learn all of these things about his parents that they had lied to him about. So, you know, that was a good chunk of the first book. But then afterwards, it's obvious that we don't need to spend as much time with those characters because they aren't the ones who are interesting in this scenario.
1: Yeah. I I remember when we were doing the podcast on Sorcerer's Stone and like, And when I first reread it, I hadn't realized until you pointed out exactly how much time he spends at Privet Drive and how much of the book is is set in Privet Drive.
0: Because it never feels like it's that much time. never. But I do think it was a smart move to make that less and less as we go, because not only does Harry not like being there, it's one of those things where you kind of just beat it over everyone's head a little too much if you kept him there even longer.
1: yeah. Like, after a while, everyone's like, okay, I get it. He spends summers with his awful aunt and uncle. Can we just get back to Hogwarts already?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that's exactly how Harry feels about it, too. You know, he's like, okay, uh, can I go back to school now? Yeah. One of the other things about this book is that it certainly feels a lot darker than the first two, even though you have, you know, these big challenges ahead of them in Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets with the Dementors, And we haven't even touched on them yet, but with the Dementors and sort of the chaos around Sirius Black's escape, you know, you have this sort of grim side of the wizarding world that comes out in this book. And you can see how it affects Harry anytime one of the Dementors is around. And it's literally bad for his health because he's, you know, falling off broomsticks from, you know, however many feet in the air it was, like 40, 50 feet or something ridiculous. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they they cause him to relive the worst moment of his life, which is the death of his parents. And it's something that like up until that point, he would only kind of have like random dreams about and the dreams were always pretty nondescript and just kind of these bright flashes of green light. And it was never something that he was fully able to remember. And the Dementors kind of dredge all of that up for him.
0: What I like too is that you don't have to have Voldemort really present in this book for that to happen. Obviously, you know, with the memories, he's there. But it's one of those things where it's not the battle that Harry is fighting.
1: Yeah. He's not really prominent in this one outside of the fact that like we learned that Peter Pettigrew was actually the one who, you know, sold out Harry's parents to Voldemort and Pettigrew escapes to try and go find Voldemort and Yeah, we get Trelawney's prediction where she kind of tells Harry in this weird trance-like state that the servant of the Dark Lord will escape and they will be reunited, and it's going to set off this series of events that nobody's really ready for yet. Um, But uh, outside of that, like we don't we don't see Voldemort at all in this one.
0: Yeah, Trelawney is a new character too, if I'm not mistaken, because it's a new class for them, and it's one of the weirder classes. And, you know, at Hogwarts, classes can get pretty weird. I feel like it's like, okay, why, why are we doing this? And you can tell that even Professor McGonagall's like, oh, that class.
1: Yeah. They start taking divination this year, which is the one class that Hermione does not excel in. And it's so funny to see her struggling and to see her kind of break character a little bit um, in terms of just like being sort of disrespectful to a professor which is something that nobody would ever expect from Hermione. And to see her kind of get up and storm out of a class is unheard of. Um, and this is like one of the classes that she ends up dropping at the end of the year, just to make her schedule easier, because it's not something that she really believes in anyway. Which kind of goes back to us wondering why she took so many classes in the first place. Like, yeah. She went into this one kind of with an air of disbelief and and not feeling like any of it was real. So why bother taking it in the first place?
0: Exactly. It's almost the complete opposite of how she felt in Chamber of Secrets when Lockhart was teaching. And she was kind of getting all flustered every time (laughs) she would see him because she thought he was so great. And because she's still a kid, it's like you have all of these things going through your head and what you believe, what you don't believe, and what seems real and what doesn't. And it's interesting to me that, you know, the phony that Lockhart was somehow got past Hermione. And she sort of just ate up every word he was telling them. But then something like this, where you can tell there's some truth behind what happens in the divination class. But then, you know, because it's not really an academic subject, Hermione can't excel in it.
1: Yeah, it it is very funny to see how differently she reacted to the two professors and the two subjects.
0: Yeah, I do want to touch a little on character development on that note, because even though Hermione is exhausted this entire book, I feel like there's still enough given to her character to where she's able to develop a little more. You know, she goes through this experience of trying to juggle way too much at once. And I think it's definitely a learning experience for her. And even though she's able to time travel, I think in the end, she realizes that maybe it's not best for her to use that for her classes. And I think she kind of comes to that realization maybe when they are trying to save Buckbeak. And, you know, you have all of these things that could go wrong in that moment because it's not just her being in three classes at once or whatever, which that in itself is weird. You would think someone would be able to put together that Hermione was in two classes at the same time and think it's very strange. But it's just one of those things where you get little glimpses of it along the way. You know, I believe Harry and Ron were walking to a class, and then all of a sudden, Hermione was there, and then she wasn't. Yeah. And it's like, it didn't click with them what was happening, because they thought maybe she just scurried off somewhere, made it into the class before them. But then when she didn't show up for the class, then they were like, Uh, this is very unlike her. What's going on? So I think that sort of just got to her by the end of the book, and you know, even though saving Buckbeak was the right thing to do, I think she's probably starting to realize, you know, maybe I shouldn't push myself so hard because you know we almost lost Buckbeak because you know we couldn't help Hagrid enough or something like that. You know, that sort of seems to be the way she would think about it.
1: Yeah, she she starts off the year trying to do everything. By the end of it, she realizes that like there are more important things than being able to take every single class offered at Hogwarts. So she learns to kind of let go a little bit and just focus on what really matters.
0: Ron is also someone who is able to learn to let go a little by the end, especially because he doesn't want to believe that Scabbers is actually a person. Because I think in the back of his mind, he realizes how weird that is, but you know, for him, he was so attached to this animal for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why, (laughs) but because it was a rat.
1: It's funny, though, because in the books leading up to this, he kind of just, he always talks about scabbers as this useless thing that he just like inherited from his brother. Yeah. And then in book three, we think that Hermione's new cat Crookshanks has eaten scabbers and Ron gets so upset that him and Hermione kind of stop talking for a while. And it's like, dude, you, you barely seem to care about this <laughs> this rat up until now. That is like, what true. Changed?
0: I think it's because he disliked the cat so much from his first encounter with the cat. Yeah. So I think it had more to do with the cat than it had to do with scabbers. And it's one of those things where sometimes people don't really realize how much they liked something until it's gone. So, you know, I feel like that could have been the case with Ron and he's just in disbelief that it could possibly be a person and no one in his family would have realized it, especially with his dad, you know, working for the Ministry of Magic and everything like that. And in a way that is kind of hard to believe because you think at some point he would not want to be a rat anymore. Which, I mean, that's kind of a fitting animal for him to be, given what he did, I suppose. Yeah.
1: Yeah, to spend, like, I guess it's about 12 years as a rat seems like a really difficult thing. And I I think it kind of, it starts to show on Pettigrew when he changes back into a human. I think they describe him as, like, being kind of rat-like as a human, too. Right. So I'm I, I'm just I wonder if that's what he looked like beforehand, or if that's like the effect of him having spent so much time as a rat.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting to know. I have no idea what the answer to that is. <laughs> and then you have Harry, who obviously has the most character development, I would say just because of how much he's learning about his dad specifically, and how much he seems to be like him without trying to be like him you know you definitely see that in kids when their parents are still around like you can definitely see that draco gets everything from his father pretty much and that isn't exactly a good thing but with harry this is all happening subconsciously basically you know it's like something he was just born to do
1: yeah you could say that harry is an argument for nature versus nurture yeah Where, I mean, obviously, he grew up in a house with the Dursleys. He's nothing like them. Thankfully. (laughs) But he's everything like his parents, who he hardly got to know and who he has very few memories of.
0: And the memories he does seem to have at this point are all painful ones, you know, because he was so young when it happened. And to have all of this dumped on him in this book, you know, that's a lot it's a lot more than just you know looking in the mirror and getting his dad's invisibility cloak and everything that sort of happened in the first two books really I mean Hagrid did dump a lot on him in that first book when he was like oh no here's what happened to your parents and it's like oh okay that's a lot to take in when you're 11 but I guess from Harry's perspective he would rather know the truth than not know it at all
1: yeah 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 I think he definitely would prefer to know. I mean, we see him struggling to figure out what the truth is as time goes on, um, not to get into the later books yet, but, you know, we see some of Snape's memories in Book six, and it kind of challenges what Harry has been told about his his dad up until that point. so he's he is constantly looking for the truth behind who they were, and, you know, where he comes from and who he is,
0: yeah. plus, you have. Harry sort of finding an outlet for all of the stress that he's feeling and everything like that in Quidditch. And you really see that sort of come to life even more in this book because you have him being gifted the firebolt and everyone in the Gryffindor Tower is raving over it. And then you have Professor McGonagall who snatches it away from him because Hermione went and Told basically that, you know, oh, maybe it's from Sirius Black, and everyone thought he was, you know, this huge criminal at the time. So I get why Hermione did that, but she did do some things that just caused a lot of tension between the three of them throughout this book. And you could tell how having that broom taken away just really. Put a damper on Harry's mood for a while until he was able to get it back and then finally go write it and play Quidditch. And it's one of those things where I feel like anyone who has ever played some sort of sport for any length of time probably understands what that feels like. Yeah, definitely. Although,
1: to be fair, she was right. It did come from Sirius Black. Yeah. I mean, at that point, they all did think that he was trying to kill Harry. So she had his best interests at heart.
0: And it was something that took him time to sort of understand why she was doing that. It's like, you know, at first he's understandably upset because he just got this fancy new broom and just wants to go ride it. It, It's sort of like a kid who gets a new bike or something and then their parents don't let them go ride it or something. I don't know if that's ever happened to anyone, but (laughs) I'm sure it has at some point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or like being gifted something and then being told like, wait, I have to put it together. You can't touch this yet. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Professor McGonagall had it for a decent amount of time, too. It's not like it was a one-day thing and he got it back the next day. It seemed to take quite a while.
1: Yeah, well, they, like, stripped it down just to make sure that there were no, like, curses or hexes placed on it.
0: Yeah, and even afterwards, when they did, like, their preliminary search, they were like, oh, we're going to go a little deeper and just make sure everything's all right. And, you know, it's one of those things where as a kid, some things you just don't understand why they have to happen when they have to happen. And you can tell that's still the case with Harry, Hermione, and Ron in different regards, because, you know, they're only, what, 13? They're not that old. You know, that's not even, I guess, for some kids, it's early high school age. I don't know. I think I was 14. But whatever, it's sort of that age range where you think you know more than you do, but you really don't. (laughs) Yeah. Even Hermione, who is one of the smartest students in the book. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, like I said, she she does what she thinks is best for Harry and her intentions were good, but obviously like she doesn't know the truth about Sirius and she doesn't quite understand the whole situation. And it all works out in the end. That's all that matters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it sort of leaves you with more of a what's to come for these three characters. One thing I did notice, though, you don't see too much of Ginny in this book. No, you get a glimpse of her and Harry together. And they sort of like share this look. And then you're like, okay, you know, they're still sort of planning the seed for that to happen later on. And like you said, we won't go too much into the later books. But it was interesting to me how much of a factor she played in the last book, and then she was virtually non-existent in this one.
1: Yeah, she was huge in book two. And then in book three, she kind of falls to the background again, and we kind of tuck her away for the future.
0: It's tough when you have so many characters, too, and especially with new characters being introduced in each of the sequels so far, so to speak. And you know, obviously Sirius Black is someone we are going to want to learn more about as we go. So you sort of have some characters who have to take a back seat and even though, you know, Draco seems to be present and always nagging Harry, he didn't have too much to do because, you know, he was slashed by Buckbeak or whatever. He went and whined like a little baby about it. And then he tried to knock Harry off his broomstick during you know, the Quidditch game and paid dearly for it because Harry hit him with a Patronus. So it was one of those things where he didn't have a huge role, but he was just sort of constantly nagging just enough throughout for you to not forget that he's there. And, you know, no one can ever forget that Draco's there because he won't yeah. get you. So nope. to have Ginny sort of just pop up when they're all getting ready to go to Hogwarts and then take a back seat for the rest of the book, I was like, yeah, this this is probably why I didn't catch on to this the first time I read through the books. It's like you see glimpses here and there, but it's nothing so major to where, you know, like Ron and Hermione spent so much time together and it's like okay, I see that happening.
1: Yeah. I like Ginny and I I kind of wish there had been more of her but I also don't know how she would have worked within the context of this story if there had been more of her.
0: Yeah, that is true. The only thing I can think of is something relating to scabbers and you know, a conversation about that, but otherwise, you know, even Fred and George, you know, they give Harry the map and then they sort of admire the Firebolt like everyone else. And that's really it, I think, from the two of them, too, which is amazing, considering how much trouble they tend to make.
1: Yeah, they're, they're still two of my favorite characters
0: in these books. Yeah. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, they sort of pop up a little more in the movies because of the kind of characters they are. And it's like, okay, we need these guys on screen a little more. <laughs> yeah. But is there anything else you want to discuss about this book? Um, No, I think we covered it. Sometimes it's so hard because, especially as these books are going to get longer, I feel like our episodes are definitely going to get longer with them. Because like I said earlier, she just packs so much into them. And the fact that you and I are still noticing things through our rereads that we didn't catch before, it's like, oh, okay. And then you sort of it sort of makes you sit back and think about that one thing for a long time. And you're like, wait, all right, let's think this all the way through. Yeah.
1: Like I said earlier, that's kind of why I love rereading books is because you do like notice these continuities that you don't necessarily pick up on the first time around, because you're just so absorbed in the story itself, that when you reread, like when you're rereading, you can kind of take your time with it and really focus on these tiny little details that you may might have thought were like, inconsequential at the time, but actually kind of mattered quite a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm definitely looking forward to diving into the remainder of the books. I know I have my work cut out for me, but I think we'll try to do one every three to four weeks or so here, if I can manage to swing that with all of my Stephen King reading. <laughs> but Becky, thank you so much for coming back on to talk about this. And, you know, I We'll eventually rewatch the movies as well. And, you know, we'll see if I end up doing separate episodes on those as well. I know I did one about all of them, but sometimes it's nice to go a little more in depth on things. So we'll see. And I will definitely keep you in mind for those as well. Yeah, please do. And to our listeners, as always, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.